If you got your Bibles, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and then Acts chapter 4. Um, I do want to give a shout out real quick to our small group ministry. Um, we had more people in small groups this week than we had in the worship services, which is really, really special. It does show you it is a bit of a time of pandemic, the first time in history that that's happened where we've had live services uh, and small groups, and so it was very encouraging. Uh, if we don't get to see you, we're trying to stay in contact with, the, uh, with our people that are watching online via email and again checking in on them with phone calls and such uh, but to get to see that with the small groups that you guys plugged in together that was really really cool this week and so if you have not joined a small group yet what is wrong no I'm just kidding just sign up for one again uh, uh, just to turn in the card on the way out or reach out to Ed Downing uh, via email and again we'll get you set up with a small group okay Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 4 verse 13 um, starts today with this question have you ever seen a very specific imprint before have you ever seen a very specific imprint before? Uh, by that I mean maybe you were outside in an area where there was snow and you saw like a footprint in the snow somewhere. And I'm telling you, you immediately know by looking at the imprint, either there was a dinosaur here or a tiny bird. You know what I mean? I mean, definitely one or the other. Big footprint, big imprint kind of uh, means dinosaur, right? A big imprint means a larger animal. Uh, and again, tiny could mean a bird coming through. Or have you seen fingerprints on something before uh, where you just know Someone has been there. With my house, uh, with the uh, small kiddos that we have, sometimes we find little bitty fingerprints on our television set, all right? So back in the day, TVs used to be really durable, all right? How many of you remember the huge bubble screen TVs? You remember the bubble screen TVs? Some of us old people in this room will remember those. My parents back in the day made payments on a wooden box bubble screen TV. Do y'all remember those by any chance? I mean, you could peg that thing with a football at close range and nothing would happen to it, okay? Not these new flat screen TVs, right? So again, my kids are touching the TV screen, and so it's a very specific imprint when you have a child's sticky hand, right, uh, on the TV. And in their defense, iPads have messed everything up because they think everything's a touch screen, you know, and so they go up and try to touch the screen. And so we'll sit our kids down and say, hey, uh, which one of you touched the TV? And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, they turn into like the disciples. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? I mean, it's like, oh, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And we go, we know one of you did because we can see the tiny little handprints that are on there, right? Again, it leaves a very specific imprint uh, on the television. Here's what uh, happens when it comes to a disciple. In a disciple's life, after interacting with you, there is a specific imprint in Jesus' name that we leave on the world around us, so much so that they know uh, that, again, when they've been around us, that something special has happened around them. And there's a verse that uh, uh, describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Here's what Paul has to say. Paul describes it like a smell, a very specific imprint on our senses. Here's what he says. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphant procession in Christ, look at this, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance, underline the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma, underline the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To those, or, or to the one, we are the smell, underline smell of death, and the other, we are the fragrance, underline the fragrance of life. Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not 
peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Stop right there for just a minute. What Paul says in this passage is that when you are around someone who is a true disciple, there's a smell that they give off. There's a fragrance. There's an aroma that they give off that points you to Almighty God as the source of their strength and as the source of their power. He says that this is not just among the saved, but it's also among the perishing. When a true disciple is in the world, you just smell different than the rest of the world. There should be, again, a fragrance that points to Jesus Christ. And then he gives a crazy example in the end. He says, for example, as a church, when people are around us, they don't just feel like we're about making money, that we could have made money. In fact, I could have made money a whole lot easier ways uh, than we do up here. I could have worked in a whole lot easier places uh, than we have up here. In fact, to move up here and to plant waterfront, I gave up a good job, gave up good money to be able to come here uh, and do what we felt like God was calling us to do in starting the church. And Hopefully, that's the fragrance and the aroma that you receive when you walk through the door, that this is a movement of Almighty God and not just something that some man, that some person decided to do. When you smell something, you ever been around a smell before that just completely puts you at ease? Sometimes it's like the smell of grandma's house, you know what I mean? And just that smell, when you smell it, or maybe it's the smelling or the smell of some delicious cooking uh, that you wanted to eat. And sometimes it's just kind of a smell of home that you smell. On the very first mission trip that we went on to Slovakia, uh, those of you who've been since, we've done 11 trips, by the way, uh, over the years. My wife and I have led 11 trips to Slovakia. And uh, the very first year was the hardest uh, because they blitzed us with a whole bunch of different food to figure out what the Americans could stomach, what they could handle. And uh, uh, that first year, I mean, I'm telling you, the food was delicious, but imagine a roller coaster, just highs and lows of all different kinds of food. I mean, we would go to bed some nights and our stomachs were so heavy from the richness of the food. Even the chocolate that we had over there was so much richer than the normal chocolate you'd have here. Uh, It just was so delicious, but a lot of times we'd go to bed with the stomach well, sure, this is where we flew in, was this, del- one of the meals that we had right before we went to Budapest, which is where we flew in, was this delicious Slovak-based pasta, and it was pasta with butter sauce on top, which was delicious, covered completely in poppy seeds all the way across the top, and then powdered sugar, and then really rich bacon put on the top of it. Now, just for the record, it was spectacular. It was so delicious. But then we got into a car and had to drive 90 miles to Budapest, and we were all just sick again by the time we got to the hotel. We're not feeling good, and our stomach had just been blitzed with all these different types of food. It was so delicious. But again, I just was very, very heavy. And I'll never forget, we get to the hotel. It's right before 10 o'clock. We're in Budapest and we had, uh, when we pulled into the hotel, I could see it in the eyes of the kids. It was like, can we please go and find something to eat that's, that, that's a little bit closer to home? And so sure enough, we're walking through the streets of Budapest and all of a sudden we see the golden arches. We see the arches for McDonald's right there in Budapest. I have never wanted McDonald's so badly in my entire life. But again, after a week, eight days of being eating things that were foreign to us, we see the golden arches. And here's what's weird. I can never remember like acknowledging the smell of a McDonald's before, but that day I could smell America, right? I could smell McDonald's right there. And I'll never forget, we walk in, I mean, we're walking, we actually 
ran in. We ran into the McDonald's, and when we got there, we bought up everything that we could, and we just sat around, and it was one of the most bizarrely, again, uh, comforting American moments that we had right there at the end of that trip. Again, the aroma, right, what hits your senses reminds you of something uh, that uh, was, in this case, was like home. In the case that we read about in the passage, that aroma, that fragrance points people towards God in the way that you live your life. If you're taking notes, write this down. A disciple's imprint on the world may not be visible, but it is unmistakable. Let me say that again. A disciple's imprint on the world may not be visible, but it is unmistakable. So now we're going to do something that we don't normally do in our church. Usually I give you a whole bunch of verses and a passage that we rip through together. But every now and again, there is a verse in scripture that is a three-point sermon all in itself. And Acts chapter 4 verse 13 is one of those verses. If you're somebody who memorizes verses or you want to try to start memorizing verses, this is a great one to memorize, all right? It's the idea of when someone investigates a disciple's life, This is what they should see. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to camp out on it today. Are you ready for this? Uh, Leading into this passage, by the way, remember Acts chapter 2 is when Peter preaches at Pentecost. It's right after, uh, again, just a month after Jesus has ascended in heaven. And so they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are added to their number that day. Well, at the end of Acts chapter 2, the church is growing, and it's adding people being saved every single day as they go out and preach the word. Well, by the time you get into Acts chapter 3, remember Peter and John are walking into Solomon's colonnade for the time of prayer at the temple, and as they're walking in, there's a man sitting by the gate called Beautiful who has been born lame. He's sitting by the gate called Beautiful, and as he's waiting there, Peter looks at him, looks straight at him, and says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. This was a man who for years had been brought to the temple in need of being healed, and all of a sudden, the man leaps to his feet runs into the procession of all the people in the worship service and all of a sudden they're praising God together. It's a miracle of miracles. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders had walked past that man for years and had been unable to do anything for him. So Peter stands up to present the gospel, to tell the good news right after this man's been healed. And it says the religious leaders take he and John, rip them off the stage mid-sermon, throw them in jail, and remember, this is the very first time the apostles have ever been in jail before for the name of Jesus. They're thrown in jail, and after spending the night in jail, all of a sudden the religious leaders call before them and they say, by what power or what name did you do this? It then says from our last week's lesson, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and says, we didn't do this on our own. We did this through the name Jesus Christ. And verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which they may be saved. Verse 13 is the aftermath and the response of people hearing the gospel message and seeing a movement of Jesus, a movement of Christ in the midst of their community. So here's what happens. What do they see? What do they experience after hearing from Peter and also being in the aftermath of the miracle? You look at, the, look at this, verse 13. We're going to read the whole thing together and then break it down. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter, underline the courage of Peter and John. And they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Underline unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished 
And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Underline and highlight, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This verse is pure gold, and we're going to rip it apart today. Are you ready? If you're taking notes, our big million-dollar question, what does the world see when they investigate a disciple's life? What does the world see when they investigate a disciple's life? In this circumstance, it says the very first thing that they notice from Peter and John is their courage. Now, just for the record, there are a lot of people that talk about courage or who will say they have courage or on their Twitter handle might infer that they have courage. But courage is not just a word. Courage is something that is visibly represented in another person's life. Anyone can say they have courage, but true courage is something that must be shown, something that must be exhibited in a person's life. Now, just for the record, there are deeper deeper examples of courage that we're going to go through later on in the message. But I want to start us at the lowest common denominator. Are you ready for this? Courage, one of the first times I understood courage, Happened when I was six years old at Six Flags over Texas. Okay? You ever been to an amusement park before? At every amusement park, there's a ride like this one, but at Six Flags over Texas, it was called Splash Water Falls, all right? Any of you know what Splash Water Falls is? Splash Water Falls is where you hop on a little boat, and the little boat goes up a ramp, around an edge, and then splashes down into a big pool of water and creates a tidal wave that hits a bridge, right, that's right there uh, just on the other side of the wave. And here's why it's a famous ride. It's very, very short, and you get wet when you ride it. But the big thing is, do you have the courage to stand on the bridge, right, and take the tidal wave hit as it comes at you? How many of you have ridden on that ride before? Raise your hand. I'm telling you, it's a part of just about everybody's childhood. It's a very, very easy ride, and again, you get wet. Well, I'm six years old, and this is a true story. My dad actually had me memorize verses. I'm a true preacher's kid. He had me memorize verses so I could get my first Six Flags ticket so that I could go to the amusement park. And one of those was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. Uh, That verse I had to memorize so that I could go to Six Flags when I was six years old. I'll never forget, my dad was there with me that day, and my dad said, son, do you have the courage to stand on the bridge? I said, what do you mean? He said, let's watch. And we watched the boat go up and around, and we watched the people standing on the bridge waiting to see if that wave was, see if they could stand the wave smacking into them. And there were some people we saw like run off the bridge as the wave was coming because they didn't want to get hit by it. And you watched it. People completely dry would stand on the bridge, and then they get slapped by the wave, and they're completely drenched from head to toe. Not only that, it looked like it hurt a little bit when the wave slapped into them. And so I'll never forget, dad goes son you want to ride the ride you want to stand on the bridge and I was like I don't know I don't know he goes do you have the courage to stand on the bridge and so sure enough we rode the ride you get a little bit wet on the ride but then it gets to the point where we can stand on the bridge before we leave and go off to ride something else and I said dad I want to try I want to try to stand on the bridge and take the hit from the wave. And my dad, this is so funny. He said, all right, son, you're going to want to stand like this. I remember him saying that. Cross your arms in front of you. You're going to want to stand like this. So I stand up there. I've got my dad next to me. And I watch as the boat goes up, 
comes around, and I'm telling you, my heart is beating so fast because you have all that anticipation. And at that point, I don't know what it's going to feel like. I've watched it, but I've never done it myself before. My heart is racing. All of a sudden, I can see it coming down. I can still vividly remember watching the water, the tidal wave come towards me, and then all of a sudden, it hits my body, my little six-year-old body, and it felt like needles up against my skin as that water was slamming towards me. I'm soaked from head to toe, and I remember getting pushed back up against the back end of that bridge. And all of a sudden, I'm up against it, and the water then stops and falls to the ground, and the adrenaline hits your system of, whoa, this is crazy. And then I had walked around for the rest of the day with my shoes squishing because there was even water in my shoes. Now listen, courage is not talking about whether or not you would stand on a bridge. Courage is whether or not you have stood on the bridge and taken the hit. When it comes to your faith, it says the first thing that is memorable about the disciples is that they weren't just willing to take the hit, they did. They had courage. It was shown in their lives, they stood on the bridge, and they took the hit. If you're taking notes, write this down. The merging of courage and faith produces a holy and memorable boldness. Let me say that again. The merging of courage and faith produces a holy and memorable boldness. It is a powerful thing when we exhibit courage. Just for the record, courage is not just doing something with your physical body uh, that, uh, that causes you to be in pain physically. Sometimes it can be emotional struggle. You ever been around somebody who was a or been around people who were in a courageous couple? The idea of a courageous couple is someone where, I'm telling you, just over time, I mean, nobody's perfect. There are going to be stretches where you mess up. My wife and I in January, it'll be 16 years that we've been married. And can I just tell you, there have been times she screwed up and I had to forgive her. <laughs> there have been even more times when I've screwed up and she's had to forgive me. Now, don't miss this. Courage Courage is knowing that you have married someone who is imperfect and making the decision regularly in Jesus' name to stand up on that bridge and to figuratively take the hit. And we're not telling you to do anything where you stay in a situation where you're being physically abused, ever. But listen to me. Marriage is hard. It's difficult. You gotta have courage if you want it to last. There's some of you who the Lord has called you to stay in a work situation. And I'm telling you, it's hard every day. You take a hit from your coworkers, you take a hit from your employees, some of you take a hit from the American people. And can I tell you this? The Lord has not released you yet from what you're doing. And so you gotta have courage. You go stand on that bridge in Jesus' name. It's not something you can just talk about. It's something that you have to illustrate. Over the years, there have been some times in my life where it was really cool to be my friend, all right? Can I tell you, there have been other times when it took courage to be my friend because hanging out with me wasn't cool. Some of you experienced that in your own lives. It wasn't cool to be my friend. But those friends that stick by you and have courage, even in the midst of unthinkable difficulty, those are the ones that you trust with your life, isn't it?
I want to share a set of verses with you. Save your spot there in uh, Acts chapter 4. But now flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Famous verse here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what Paul has to say is the great enemy of courage. And by the way, 2 Timothy, Paul is writing somewhere between two weeks and two months before he is executed for his faith. He is living courage at this point when he writes this. So why do we not have courage? We trade it for fear, Paul says. 2 Timothy 2, verse, or chapter, or 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. It says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Stop right there for just a minute. Fear is the great enemy of courage. And here's what Paul says. In order to embrace fear, we forfeit power, love, and self-discipline. That's the price for you to be afraid. You forfeit power, love, and self-discipline in order for you to exist in that fear. Now, I don't know if there's a worse trade that you could make than that one. When we have Jesus Christ, we can walk in confidence. We can stand on that bridge. We can take the hit. We can endure. It begs the question, are there tangible representations of courage in your life? Are there tangible representations of courage in your life? In the words that you speak, in the way that you walk with Christ, can people look in your eyes during these incredibly uncertain times? And realize that you have hope, that you have peace, that you are not afraid of the wave to come because Jesus is the one who holds the future. Are there representations of courage in the way that you spend your money? Now, just for the record, courageous spending does not mean you spend money you don't have, all right? It's the opposite. There's somebody in this room who God has called you to save. You've experienced through this pandemic that you need to have more in savings. And instead of spending money on that frivolous thing that you want, the most courageous thing you can do is go, I'm putting it away. I'm putting it into savings. I'm setting it aside. Or listen to this, I'm going to give it to somebody who needs it. Not just so I can have the new thing, but I'm going to give it to somebody who truly needs it that the Spirit has revealed to me. And then, just because you know this is coming, do you have courage in sharing your faith? It's a tough one in this city, isn't it? You don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to overstep. You don't want to cause waves. And so you think that holding back your faith is the way to do that. Are there tangible representations of courage in your life when you have spoken the name Jesus to someone else and had the courage to let them know this is a defining characteristic in my life? Let's keep moving. Flip back over to Acts chapter 4. And now let's look at verse 13 again. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and then I love this. This is my second favorite part of the verse. Are you ready? The last part's my favorite. Second favorite part. It says, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Look at this. They were astonished. Now stop right there for just a minute. Here's what you got to realize in this passage. With Peter and John, Peter is a fisherman. And John is most likely a 17 or 18-year-old kid. In all the church pictures, all the church of movies that you see, or in all the, uh, again, the, the uh, church plays that you saw over the years, you always have, like, again, the lead actors playing these roles. And they're supposed to play Peter and John throughout the generations. And in John's case, they're supposed to play John through a period of 70 years that he's on this earth after following Jesus. And so because of that, we have this picture in our head that these people are old. Here's what's happening. 
happen? The Pharisees are sitting there going, bring us the great Peter. Bring us the great John. We've heard stories of the man who preached when 3,000 were added to their number in a single day. Bring out the great Peter. And then all of a sudden, they find out what? They are unschooled and ordinary. And it says when they saw they were unschooled and ordinary, what? They were astonished. Now, DC's the opposite. We think when they see that I am highly educated and deeply skilled, that I am above average and that I am special, then they will rise up and go, wow, their God must be great. That's not the way it works. When they saw that they were unschooled and ordinary, it says they were astonished that they were the ones bringing this powerful message. Peter's a fisherman. Sometimes this happens. So I'm from West Texas, and being from West Texas, our um, claim to fame verbally is the long I sound. It's why you hear me say, open your Bibles, all right? Okay, it just comes out in the long, you say I, and, and we say I, all right? Do you know why West Texans say I? West Texans say I because we try to open our mouths as little as possible because the wind blows all that dirt from all the cotton that's being farmed out there. So we talk like yes, all right? You know, you keep your mouth closed because you don't want dirt to get in your teeth, all right? That's just the way that it goes. That's why anytime people make fun of, uh, of George W. Bush, by the way, you know, where they kind of do his little voice, and he's from our part of West Texas. That's the way you go. You keep your mouth shut and you do your long eye sounds because you don't want to get anything in your mouth. I mean, that's just the way you do it. Peter and John, Peter wasn't raised at the Pharisee school. He didn't talk like the religious leaders. This power flowing from him, it would have been like them listening to someone from West Texas in the Northeast. They would have sat there and gone, this is the great Peter? This is the one that God has chosen for this message? And then they look at John and they go, and John, the apostle, the apostle who is the one who stayed with Jesus at the cross, who Jesus entrusts his own mother to, the one that saw the empty tomb with the grave clothes folded up, is a kid, is 17, 18 years old. What they're doing at that point is they go, first of all, that they had the courage after spending the night in jail to speak with such authority in front of us. That courage is admirable. But then they stop and they go, and they were just nobodies. They were just ordinary people. It wasn't like some angelic form in Peter. Man, the power of God is working through this fisherman. The power of God is working through this kid, this 17, 18-year-old kid. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does the world see when they investigate a disciple's life? Number one, they see courage. And number two, they see weakness. When they investigate a disciple's life, they see weakness. Now, I want you to write this down too. Not weak character. There's a difference between weaknesses that we have in exhibiting God's grace to the world and in weak character that causes the gospel message to be clouded, all right? This is not you with a license to sin. This is the opposite, that we live with good character for the name Jesus Christ because the message is worth it, because he is worth it and worthy of us living that life, but we in our shortcomings point to him in all things. I've gotten to experience this firsthand, by the way. Oh, if you're taking notes, write this down. Human deficiency perfectly frames the masterpiece of the gospel. 
Human deficiency perfectly frames the masterpiece of the gospel. One of my favorite places to go in this city is to go to the National Art Gallery. I love going there. It's probably my favorite museum in town. Um, I love art, and uh, just getting to go and experience it is wonderful. When it's open, you know, when it's not a pandemic, it's a great place to go. In fact, one of my favorite ways to prayer walk is I will go through the National Art Gallery, and then I will walk through it specifically thinking of you guys, and then I'll walk through and I'll see a painting that'll remind me of someone, and I'll take a picture of it with my phone, text it to that person, and then I'll say a prayer for them just as I'm walking through the art gallery. If you want to steal that, you can, but real easy way, again, to, to prayer walk in that area. You ever been to an art gallery where they had, I mean, when you go and you see these masterpieces, these works, sometimes the frame is really ornate, and then sometimes the very best thing for the piece of artwork is for there just to be four slats of wood around the sides. When it comes to the gospel message, your life is the frame around the masterpiece. Nobody gets out of bed in the morning and goes, you know what, I can't wait to go see the frames at the art gallery today. No. Now there are some beautiful frames out there there's some really ornate pieces, but the goal of the frame is that it would accentuate the masterpiece. That's how we're supposed to live, that we are a big neon sign pointing to Jesus, that people look at our lives and they go, when I'm around them, it draws me into the message. It catches my eye. And upon further review, the greatness of the piece of artwork is not the frame, but rather the masterpiece itself. This happens to me a lot, and uh, it's kind of funny. It's somewhat insulting in the beginning, uh, but uh, ends up as kind of been a defining characteristic. When we moved here to plant the church, every now and again, I will, I say every now and again, this happens about once a month, okay? I will meet somebody, and uh, we'll be talking, and they'll say, hey, what do you do? And I'll say, well, I work at Waterfront Church. And it's so funny, because they go, oh, I've heard of Waterfront Church, that's crazy. It's not even very old, is it? I go, no, we started it six years ago. And they go, that's amazing. What do you do at Waterfront Church? And I always say, well, I'm the pastor. Their response immediately is, the head pastor? That's usually what they say. The head pastor? And I know what they're saying. I don't really look like somebody who would be, I mean, when you picture a pastor, you probably picture somebody a little bit more buttoned up. I just is who I is, baby. All right, it's just how it goes. But they look at me and they go, the head pastor? And I go, yeah, the one who came, we got to be the ones to found the church. It used to kind of be insulting. Can I tell you what I see in it now? I'm the wood frame around the masterpiece. The Lord has allowed us to be a part of something. And when people meet me, I think that their genuine deal is going, man, this must be special if the Lord used him to do it. That's the goal of every believer's life that when people look at us, they would go, how in the world is what's happening in their life able to happen? And then all of a sudden, the cross comes into focus. Paul writes it this way. Save your spot there in Acts 4, but now flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 7. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. These are great verses. If you're in a circumstance where, again, uh, you feel like your shortcomings uh, are embarrassing, um, things that you've been born with, things that, you, uh, things that again, you're navigating, uh, that they're embarrassing, those are the things that God can use the most to promote the gospel. Look at chapter 12, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. It says this to Paul. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, Paul is saying right here, he says, you know, when I think about the things that you're doing through me, God, instead of getting filled with pride, he says, I have this thorn in my flesh, this thing that reminds me day after day that I'm not good enough, that I'm not perfect, that on my own, I can do no good thing. Look at what he says there in verse eight. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. Don't let me be lesser. Lord, please take it away from me. Look at verse 9. And this is the voice of Jesus. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made what? Perfect in weakness. Not just better, not just good. It is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul says in this passage is that when the world sees us and realizes Realizes we are the frame for the gospel. That's when the masterpiece shines through the most. Now, just for the record, that doesn't mean you've got to share every gory detail of your life with everybody. But for some of you, this city is show no weakness. Show no weakness. It's the only way you get promoted. It's the only way you win. And then here's what happens. The reason that you sit so upset and so worried all the time is because your organization, or just you personally, has pitched, we're strong, we're strong, we're strong. Numbers are high. Could not be any better. Everything's going great. And then on the inside and staff meeting, you gather together and you go, okay, this place is falling apart, all right? Everything's falling to pieces. You got to make sure. Show no weakness. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. No. You see, when it comes to the gospel and you go, everything's great, met Jesus and not a bad thing has happened to me since, then the world looks at you the same way the media does at a politician that does that. And they go, really? Well, let me point out just how flawed you are. When you come in and go, you know what? I am a sinner saved by grace. I got thorns just like Paul did. Then the world looks at you and they go, maybe just maybe you're being honest. You ever had somebody who went through just a mess of junk and they were real about it and then you went through a mess of junk that you didn't want anybody else to know about? I don't know about you, but guess who the only person I could talk to about my junk was? The person who'd been real about theirs. You want to reach this world? You have to be a real person. Do you hear me? You have to be a real person. And there are many of you who have gotten here based on a lie that your life is perfect, that everything's working out. Now, you don't have to tell everybody every gory detail, but the gospel is most powerful when they realize you are not some angelic creature. You are a sinner saved by grace that the Lord's power shows through. You are the frame, and he is the masterpiece. If you're taking notes, it begs a question. Are you ready? Do people know you're a real person? Do people know you're a real person? Or when they're around you, do they assume that you're perfect 
even those closest to you will try to pick you apart. And then we have our last part of the verse. It's the best part. Are you ready for this? Verse 13 of Acts chapter 4 again. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Look at this. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the power of the passage. They were not courageous without aim. They were not real and genuine without a main focus and a main goal. Number three, what does the world see when they investigate a disciple's life? Number three, they see Jesus. They see Jesus. When people investigate your life, when they look further into the masterpiece, do they see that it wasn't you that caused it, but that Christ in you is where all good things come from? Or are you the Christian who operates as a secret agent beneath the surface? There are no real secret agent Christians. I love Acts chapter 11. This comes in verse 25 and 26. You don't have to turn there, but just know the story. In Antioch, they were trying to think of a nickname to pick on the Christians, to haze them. At that point, they were part of a group called The Way. I mean, you basically could have called them The Way Church, all right? But they start looking at them, and they go, man, you guys aren't really Jews. You aren't really a cult. They go, you know what you are? You're just a bunch of Christians, it says in Acts 11.25, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Do you know what Christian means? Christian means little Christ. They look at them and they go, man, you Jesus freaks, that's all you talk about is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. They go, you know what, you guys, you even try to act like him. They go, you guys are a bunch of Jesus freaks. You're just a bunch of little Christ. And the church goes, yes, they got it. They saw the whole purpose of our life. The goal was that they would look at us and see Jesus, that our lives would scream Jesus with every ounce of who we are. And they go, that's awesome. And they go, man, you guys really are freaks. That was meant to slam you. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and that's how we identify ourselves. Christian over the years has turned into kind of this broad cloud. The true definition is it was the slam of the world that you were just a bunch of people trying to live like Jesus. If you're taking notes, a disciple's key pursuit is for every ounce of their life to scream, Jesus is my Lord. A disciple's key pursuit is for every ounce of their life to scream, Jesus is my Lord. One last little story and we'll close today. When the world looks at a disciple's life, sees the courage, sees genuine weakness, and then sees Jesus, that's when real earth-shaking change takes place in a community. I'll never forget more than a decade ago, I was leading a Bible study, discipleship group, and there was a man in that group whose wife had cheated on him multiple times. He'd asked for prayer in our groups, and it was... It was brutal. They were living in two different places at that point. And I'll never forget, he, afterwards we sat in his pickup truck and he begins to tell me the story of their struggle. It took a lot of courage to share that story. He shares the weakness, owned responsibility. But I'm telling you, he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, man, I don't know. I mean, I'm telling you, this was a brutal situation. I said, I don't want you to keep getting hurt. 
he said, you tell us in the study to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, let's pray and then tell me what you think the Spirit's telling you to do. So we prayed. It was powerful. And then at the end of it, he said, I think the Spirit's telling me to stay with her. He said, do you think that's the right decision? And again, my response was, I said, man, I don't know. I said, I hope the Spirit speaks to you. But I said, this is, this is pretty dark. And then he said this. He said, he had kids with her also. And he said, when my kids look at me, I want them to see Jesus. The end of the story is amazing. Without revealing all the twists and turns, they end up getting help. They lived apart. They went to counseling. They moved back in together. And they've been raising their kids together for more than 10 years, helping other couples find courage when difficulty seeped into their marriages as well. That's not every story. But with him, we got to watch the power of God in Jesus' name knit them back together. I share that story to say this with you. Courage, weakness, and then being a reflection of Christ for many of you in the most unthinkable of circumstances is something where the frame illustrates the masterpiece of the gospel. Now, there are some of you in this room that might say, Zach, I've been divorced. Does that mean I'm lesser because I didn't get to walk that path? Absolutely not. God can still work in your life in a powerful way. But the best way that you can love your kiddos is to love God just a little bit more and to be selfless in your interaction with your exes. Find a way to show the love of Christ even to those who show absolutely no love to you. Is that a good word? It's a hard word, but it's a true word. When that happens, I can tell you what, with that man, I could share anything going on in my life because I watched the Lord move powerfully in his. It begs the final question, how hard is it for others to take note that you've been with Jesus? How hard is it for others to take note that you've been with Jesus? There are some of you who exhibit courage. You are real and genuine in your discussions, in your relationships with people, but you're missing one last thing, one thing you lack. Speak the name of Jesus is where your power comes from. He's not just a part of your life. Your relationship with him is the defining characteristic of who you are. In your work situation, when people look at you and go, man, I don't know how you stay in this job. I don't know how you have the courage to come into work every day. Man, it's an awful environment. It's an awful setting. That's when you turn to him and you say, I pray every day and ask God for the courage. And in Jesus' name, I get out of bed, I walk through the doors, and I'm sitting here right here before you. You realize how powerful a testimony you can have in just adding that one paragraph when somebody asks you how you had the guts to walk through the door that day? Some of you are going to have this experience. I didn't say this in the last service, but I feel led to say it here. Some of you are going to get fired. And you're still going to have to come in for two weeks in order to close up? If that's you, I want to encourage you. Speak the name of Jesus. It'll do two things for you. Number one, it'll let people know why you had the courage to walk through the door. And number two, it might just after you speak his name, cause you to settle in and go, now that I said Jesus' name, I probably ought to play nice. You know what I mean? Maybe, just maybe, the courage and the weakness and speaking his name is exactly what you need to share the gospel with somebody else so that they could visibly see what a walk with God looks like. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. 
Um, don't tune out the most important part of the service these next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time, but there is something powerful about considering the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anybody here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? It's time I go stand on that bridge. It's time I have courage, not that I talk about it, not that I put it as my Twitter handle, but that I truly exhibit courage in Jesus' name. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, pray I would exhibit courage. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you, so many of you. Y'all can put your hands down. That's a big deal. If that's you, I'm gonna pray for you, but this is a decision between you and God. I'll pray for you, but maybe your simple prayer is just this. God, help me to do what I'm supposed to do. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? If I'm really being honest, I've been trying to live for that image of perfection. I've been trying to act like everything is great when the truth is I've got some real struggle with nobody looking but just me. If you can hear the Spirit calling you today to be a real person to those around you, not someone, again, who portrays like everything is perfect, but rather that you are a sinner saved by grace and that the Lord is working in your life just like he could work in someone else's, that you're the frame around the masterpiece. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, I just want to pray for you if you just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. This city breeds it, doesn't it? With nobody looking but just me, if that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to encourage you just to say this before God. Just pray, God, help me to be real. Help me to be real. Help me to be honest about my struggle. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I have courage. I try to be real with people, but I've struggled speaking the name of Jesus. I've struggled finishing it off. I've struggled pointing people towards you when it comes to my everyday life. But I don't want to be that person anymore. If that's you and you'd say, I'm ready to speak his name. I'm ready to point people towards Jesus in my life with no one looking but just me. If that's you and you're making that commitment today, if you just lift your hand where you are, that's powerful. That's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. I know how hard a commitment that is. Speak his name. Live for him. And just like Peter and John, the goal is that when they see us, they take note that we've been with Jesus. I'm going to pray for you, but your prayer is very simple. Just pray, God, I will speak your name, Jesus. God, I will speak your name, Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. And Lord, thank you for the response that's recorded here of what happened after a young fisherman and what really was most likely a teenager after they stood for you powerfully on that bridge that day. 
Lord, I pray for those in need of courage that you would give them a double portion, that they would illustrate it with their life and not just speak about it. Lord, for those who need to be real, I pray that as when it's appropriate, the walls would come down. I pray that others would open up to them about their struggle and that they might be able to find peace and comfort in one another as they share those burdens together in your name. And Lord, for those who finally just need to add the name Jesus to the conversations of triumph they're already having, Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that they would have that double portion of courage. And Lord, that we might see many come to know you just by us speaking your name. We love you, Lord. Be with these warriors as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.